0: for every cold play there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year you know yeah there's a lot of broken dreams in the business but I understand why people have terrible drug problems and alcohol problems because a lot of the entertainment industry is finding out it's nothing like you thought it would be I was nowhere you know I had I'd lost my record deal massively in debt and no obvious signs that I would ever... Be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. I still felt the enormous pressure from the label or the whatever expectations, but I didn't worry about that too much, luckily. I I didn't really let that in.
1: I was terribly uh, ambitious, really, both in terms of getting on top of the pops, but also in terms of getting my vision to come true.
0: I spent 10 years of my life with no money trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want.
1: But at that time, I remember coming over here and it was the only thing I could see was miles and miles of Oasis posters. And we didn't really have that vibe at all. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent and 10% timing.
0: I think the idea is to remain yourself but stay open to being influenced.
1: Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to, altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it, and turning it into a kind of higher art form. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Joplin. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music. Insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is the Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the renowned British premium audio brand. Suede, also known in the US as the London Suede, are an English rock band formed in London in 1989. The band's first single, The Drowners, was released in 1992 to huge industry buzz. I spoke to Brett on the eve of the band's ninth album, Autofiction, a full circle record that harks back to the beginnings 30 years ago, but at the same time comes across as fresh and modern. So many bands have taken a back-to-basics approach with their post-pandemic records But as Brett explains, the songs on Autofiction took four years to write. The band is also on a new label and launches the record with a series of small intimate shows. Now, coming off the back of the Blue Hour, the previous Suede record, which was also fantastic, albeit totally different from Autofiction, it had lush production strings and field recordings. I mean, to me... It suggests Swade is a band reborn, on top of their game. So there was no better time to have Brett on to discuss his own quote, especially the bit about the Renaissance, or Enlightenment, as he called it in his book. He also gave me permission to refer to all this as Brett's Curve, and we have a lot more content coming along that theme. This is episode 7 of season 5 with Brett Anderson of Swade. Welcome to the Art of Longevity, Brett.
0: Thank you very much. Lovely to be here.
1: How are you and whereabouts in the world are you?
0: Yeah, I'm okay. I'm sort of... uh, I'm in Somerset right now and it's raining. It rains quite a lot in Somerset, actually. And I'm fine, yeah. We're just starting to promote the new album. So lots of stuff going on, lots of sessions, radio sessions, lots of press, lots of promo, lots of stuff, blah, blah, blah. blah. But it's kind of exciting because it's, it's that thing when you you spend years and years kind of like holed up in a studio making a record and that's an amazing process but kind of emerging out of that cocoon and sort of stumbling into the daylight blinking and sort of doing promo and stuff like that and releasing the record and people hearing the record is is a really exciting time in the sort of genesis of making an album so I always quite enjoy this time it's kind of like you feel kind of fresh and excited about the record before you get too jaded about it.
1: Do you enjoy this part of the process more than you did in the past?
0: Um, yeah, I think I probably do. I think in the past we did, so, you know, in, in the 90s, especially the early 90s, we, you, we used to do so much promo because the band was so hot. You know, for, for a few years, we were the kind of hottest band around for, for a long time. The burden of press was a bit ridiculous, actually uh kind of like couldn't really cope with it and you know we're just constantly going on these press junkets and this is before the days of zoom so you couldn't just do what we're doing now we'd have to kind of like either go to you know Sony offices in london or bloody fly to hamburg to do press so it it was a kind of like it was a lot heavier and i suppose i didn't really enjoy it as much and also you sort of learn kind of how to do it like anything don't you and I, I suppose i sort of yeah i kind of quite enjoy it now i think i know what i'm talking about with, with my records i think uh, as the the other thing that helps is is that you know very early on in your career you just sort of make albums and you don't really know why and later on you're sort of forced to kind of have a bit more of a structure and a bit more of a plan and a bit more of a kind of concept for one of a better word about it so it's kind of easier to talk about i think
1: yeah yeah for sure well look We'll get into all of that. I mean, to say I'm looking forward to this is a bit of an understatement, Brett, because you inspired the whole thing with The Art of Longevity. Oh,
0: okay. Tell me about that.
1: (laughs) Well, it was your quote, um, which I've sort of taken a bit of creative license with. I remember it from an interview, I think you did in The Times, but it was taken from the latter pages of your book, Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn. So your quote at the time was actually the stations of the cross, you know, the struggle, the success, excess Disintegration, and if you're lucky, Enlightenment. I've sort of adapted that slightly, but that's the become the theme of the show. So, yeah, it's great to have you on.
0: Yeah, thank you. No, no it's, it's a pleasure. But, uh, yeah, I've always been fascinated. Well, you know, one of the things that f- sort of really interested me recently when I wrote that book was the, the sense that every band goes through the same Career arc in lots of ways, and to, to greater or lesser sort of degrees of success, and it seems to be as predictable as as kind of the life cycle of a frog. I think is, <laughs> is the analogy that I used. You know, you kind of like you get the tadpoles, and then you get the you know blah blah frogs born in the tadpoles and whatever. And it seems to be this kind of like very predictable thing. And yes, Wade. Of course, we're we're no exception to that. And luckily, we've we've emerged at a point in our career where we're still carrying on, but we're able to sort of see sort of see that kind of career art right, with a bit of objectivity, which kind of gives you a bit of clarity in what you're doing, i think sometimes
1: exactly right, and with all the guests I've had, we've explored their version of. Uh, essentially, what is becoming known as Brett's curve. <laughs> you know? I like that. Really? <laughs> in a sort of quasi-academic sense. Be named after after me. That's fine. Yeah. Well, you know, let's let's see what kind of mate we can mark on the industry. You can claim the royalty on it if it gets. I'll, anywhere. I'll have that one.
0: My other, my other one that, that I think I invented was track seven. My, I, have a, I have a theory that that I think track seven is always the strongest track on an album. Right, especially in in the olden days. It's it's there's something to do with. The way it comes midpoint in the album, that you, you need anyone that makes a decent album, it has to kind of like reignite anyone that's flagging at that point.
1: All right, I'll be listening out for that one from now on. I mean, with the curve, you know, that career arc. You're right; everyone's sort of experienced it to a greater or lesser extent. Some have gone around the the roller coaster two or three times, actually, which is which is really interesting. The other thing I'm interested in is whether it gives any kind of crystal ball effect for new bands. Just gives them a sense of kind of forward wisdom based on the experiences of of bands of longevity like Suede to see if they can be be a bit more wise to it. Because at the time, of course, as you say, in the the crazy machinations of the industry in the 90s when you were coming up, you can't possibly be wise to what's going on. You can't control it. It's inevitable.
0: No, but I'd be wary of making bands too wise. I think in a way... You have to make mistakes because that's the that's the sort of edge of your seat kind of drama that being in a band should be. I think in a funny sort of way, bands are too wise these days. There's too much of a sense of career about that I get from from modern bands, and I I, I can't name names or whatever because the career are people much more aware of it. And I think you have to go through the ringer with it a bit in order to kind of like that that is that's a fuel in a way. When we first started, it was it was a vicious gladiatorial contest that we were thrown into. You know, the kind of like the vicious, sort of like press kickings, all of these sorts of things. You know, that was all part of the contract that you entered into. So, I'm not sure if if, if bands should be wise. I think that I think the mistakes, the the drama, the kind of the, the madness is is that's kind of what makes interesting music for me. It's almost like bands. Are kind of like they're human beings that have been sort of their emotions are tested and stretched and kind of pushed to the to to the limit. And out of that kind of crucible comes their response, and their response is it can be amazing. It can break them or it can make them. It can de- destroy bands sometimes if they're not strong enough or if whatever, or it can kind of like provoke something fa- something brilliant in them. So, I think I like I say I would be wary about bands becoming too sort of self-conscious.
1: Yeah, it would all be just too boring and businesslike if that was the case, wouldn't
0: it? Yeah, exactly. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, it, this is this isn't uh, an A level music project, you know. <laughs> uh,
1: no, this is a PhD music project. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Infant school music is like as what i prefer. No, seriously, I, I I think that's that's a really interesting thing as well, the kind of the search for primitivism. And that's one the, something that we've done on the new record on fiction. We've kind of, that's been a deliberate search that we've kind of like, after becoming sophisticated for years and years and years, you suddenly tear that up, throw it away, burn it down to the stubble and start again with a kind of like a, a kind of a, a more primal sound. I think that's a really interesting point on the career arc as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it must feel really great for you to be making a record like this, and then you're about to do some shows and some intimate shows as well to put this on to an audience to be doing that at this stage of your career, I, I would have thought really would be energising.
0: Yeah, no, it's been amazing. It's kind of, it's such an exciting record to be playing and it's, it's sort of, the, the response to it, to it has been amazing actually. It's kind of, um, in a funny sort of way, we kind of, we, we made the last record, Blue Hour, and when I was making it, I kind of thought the critics would absolutely love it and it got kind of like good reviews, but it didn't get kind of, uh, you know, outrageous reviews. Uh, you know, it, I, I think the critics, critics were a little bit, they thought it was a bit pompous possibly to read between the lines. And with this record, which is definitely wasn't made with the critics in mind, it's been a a kind of an interesting paradox because it's landed really, really well. And the the reviews so far have been amazing. So that's kind of quite an interesting thing. And you're always kind of assessing these things. And I mean, don't I'm always slightly wary of, of, of artists that say they don't read their own press because I think even though you shouldn't be obsessed with it. You still need to, process people's responses to your your music and i think making music is an act of communication and you're communicating with an audience and one member of the audience is is a critic and their response is is as interesting as everyone else's response you shouldn't take get it out of proportion sort of thing but you're it's an act of communication and and, and an artist needs a response from an audience in order to process where to go next sometimes i think
1: yeah it's sort of creating in a vacuum but then as you say you you're essentially creating messages right so you want to see how those are landing and how what, what effect they're having on people
0: that's exactly it it's uh, yeah and it asks a, i think that that question asks quite a profound sort of question about uh, existential question about the nature of art in a way it's kind of uh, you know w- w- what is what is art for does art exist in a vacuum if you create a piece of art of course it exists physically but does it exist in the, in another sense? Because it, because you're you're absolutely right. It's a message, or it's an act of communication. Unless a message is received by someone and processed, then you could you could argue that that message doesn't really exist because a message is a, is an act of communication. There's a song on the new album called "What Am I Without You" that asks that question. It's a, it's a love song to the fans, and that's exactly the kind of question I wanted to ask with that song. It's that sense that. You kind of the band doesn't exist without fans. It's kind of like it's a, it's a, like a like a boat can't float without kind of water. It's sort of like they're, they're a necessary part of the of the sort of symbiotic relationship, and that whole dynamic really fans really fascinates me.
1: The art of longevity is presented with Bowers and Wilkins, a premium British audio brand. Bowers and Wilkins loudspeakers are trusted by some of the world's leading recording studios, including Abbey Road. It's a pleasure to have Bowers and Wilkins supporting the show. Well, I think it's going to be interesting for you live playing these, these new tracks because I can see where you're coming from, why you made a record like this. The songs are really strong. It's got plenty of tunes on the record, even though you're delivering them in a kind of raw way. I think you're going to get a really good response to it from fans. Were you disappointed with the reaction to The Blue Hour? I mean, I thought The Blue Hour was a masterpiece, by the way. I loved it. Thank you.
0: Yeah i was slightly disappointed. I kind of thought I sort of thought it was a the the kind of record that you know would sort of land better critically and I we fully expected it to not land that well commercially. It was almost like a sort of taking one for the team sort of thing, you know, that in it for the long game. Yeah, I suppose slightly. You know, I thought it was there was a couple of reviews that I thought didn't really give it the benefit of the doubt. I don't think we've reached that stage in our career. Maybe we won't ever reach that stage. There's certain artists that Literally anything they do will be will be greeted with sort of like oh my god this is a work of genius this is, this is the best sort of thing that they've ever done since X or whatever I feel as though we always have to be on our A game and that's fine because everyone should be on their A game but sometimes you want to be given the benefit of the doubt because because given being given the benefit of the doubt allows you to stray from the path of convention a little bit. And that's what we did with the Blue Hour. We we kind of like went somewhere that wasn't quite comfortable with us, for us. And I think that's a commendable thing to do. I don't think that's a thing that should be sort of like ridiculed. I think it's like a band should, after fucking eight albums or whatever, should be doing things that they're out of their comfort zone. And I think that's that's good to be commended. And I think there's a few responses to that record that didn't give that benefit of the doubt to the band, that didn't sort of see it as a brave act. They saw it It was oh, there's lots of choirs on it, and there's strings on it, and it's a bit pompous sort of thing. That was the tone of it. I mean, I I'd kind of, I, I don't really give a shit, to be honest. I'm just kind of analysing your question. Was I, you know, disappointed? I was rewinding back a couple of years, a, a little bit. Yeah, I was, yeah.
1: There's something in the process now where everything's a bit rushed, including the review process more so than i think in the past because there's just so much stuff to get through so it's one of those records where it just would have taken three or four even five listens for it to really start to make sense and who's going to do that in the reviewing? absolutely world, you
0: know? i think there's lots of i sense that there's lot well first of all there's less money in the, in the industry there's so there's less money in the for journalism and, and critics and so presumably journalists don't have the time and yeah you're right they're confronted with a stack of stuff to go through and they don't have the time to process it properly. And some records don't really reveal themselves straight away, I don't think. I think the Blue Hours are the kind of record that revealed itself very slowly. In fact, it was even, even in the track listing, it's, it's quite sort of back-loaded. I don't think the first half of the record is the strongest part of it. And that was a mistake by us, I think. But we, what we were trying to do was make it more of a journey. I think the second half of the record is much stronger.
1: Yeah, I love it for that reason. I think what's changed, actually, since the Blue Hour to now, so you're releasing autofiction at a time when vinyl is the fastest growing format in the business by far. That must be exciting for you, because I guess, you know, in Swade's heyday, vinyl was nowhere. It was kind of the nasty product that was the CD. So have you got something special lined up for autofiction on vinyl?
0: Yeah there's a few different versions of the album which I really like there's kind of like yeah, the artwork is different basically sort of thing yeah we have to do all that you know as part of the process of selling records now and competing in the charts and all those sorts of things you have to you have to press those buttons and kind of years and years ago we kind of avoided all that you know we never used to format everyone else used to format CDs and our first i think our first four singles were unformatted so there's only one version of them so something like Stay Together went to number three in the charts, unformatted. And to anyone that doesn't know what formatting is, formatting is a th- thing that you used to do where you'd sell two different versions of the record so the fans would go out and buy it twice, basically. We didn't used to do that. So we went to number three in the charts without formatting, which for a band like us was, was kind of an extraordinary thing. We probably would have gone to number one if we'd have formatted it. But we didn't do any of those, those sorts of things because we didn't like the sort of... I don't know, the kind of vulgarity, the commercialism of it. But that was in the days when we had the luxury of making those kind of like quite sort of, you know, sort of like decisions about our career. And I think nowadays you have to, it's much more of a dogfight and you have to compete.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It feels like there is a a lot of competition going on with, formatting around vinyl particularly because that's what pays I mean at the end of the day like if you can you know you can get in the charts through vinyl you could make more money through vinyl so it feels like a really competitive side of the business
0: I think the fans as well I think the fans kind of get that their support in the band and and you know I think we always have a lot of respect for our fans and we have a lot of respect for them the main re- way in which we have respect for them is by kind of making really caring about the music we make now right you know this album took four years to write yeah it doesn't sound like the kind of album that would take four years, but it took we started writing in 2018 and we could have stopped writing after a year or six months or something like that but I didn't think it was right yet so we carried on writing we carried on writing we carried on writing and I'll never make a record again that's that isn't one that I'm not 100% committed to I've done that before I think the 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 fifth way down the new morning was was a kind of was a mistake because we weren't hundred percent committed to it it was a weird time in our career and I don't really know what happened and I don't really want to go into it but but i, I think you have to learn from these things and as soon as you're not committed the fans will disengage and I think we we given them the ultimate pay them the ultimate respect by making good music still and I think they they recognize that and they're willing to engage and play their role and part their part of their role is paying for different formats of the records, and it's a brutal sort of dynamic because without that we couldn't afford to carry on as a band because of the nature of the music industry because of streaming because of this because of that we, you know we can go into all the all the reasons that there's less money around and so the, the hardcore fans of the band have to sort of like step up and play their role if they want the band to carry on
1: absolutely i think part of the driver behind vinyl beyond it just being a nice product to collect is exactly as you say there's that sense of participation a little bit a sense of sponsorship that you get i mean i think your record's out on friday so i'll I, you know, i'll pop to the local store in teddington rowan records have a chat with rob there probably talk about suede talk about some other albums that are releasing the record that day and come out with a few albums you know sort of bundled under my arm it's kind of an old-fashioned concept but actually it's exactly what all the kids are doing these days as well
0: yeah no absolutely yeah
1: on the art side of it, I know you've, in the past, you have always spent quite a bit of time on the cover concept and, you know, conveying all that side of it. Who did you work with this time around on Autofiction?
0: Since my third solo album, which is called Slow Attack, I've, I've worked with a chap called Paul Kira on the sleeve work, and he kind of like has done all the, all the sleeves for suede. Or He didn't actually shoot the Bloodsport sleeve, he, he kind of or did he? Sorry, I'm kind of getting confused, but I definitely work with him on it. But Paul is is a a long time collaborator and and a friend and and someone that I really trust. His eye, he's, he's he takes loads of photos of the band. He's always there. He's always he's one of those brilliant photographers that can kind of like blend into the background. And he has this ability to sort of just merge and and for you to not really know he's there. And so he can capture these sort of like quite candid moments, and we use his photographs all the time for for sleeves and for this and for that and for the other and when it came to making auto fiction uh we tried a few sort of test shoots with models and we tried this sort of thing with this guy in the bush in uh, bush hall going crazy on a stage and we tried this thing with this girl walking by a canal and none of it quite worked. and i was like no no it's not quite right it's good but it's not right it wasn't you know you know when it's right and i saw this photo by um a Danish photographer, and I'm really awful now because I can't remember his name. Anyway, it was a, this sort of like black and stark, black and white photograph of a boy on a bed. And he was kind of holding himself like this. And there was a, something magical about it. and there was, a, there was a story, a narrative. He didn't quite know what had happened. Had something happened to him? Was something about to happen? Was he, was he hugging himself out of kind of like comfort? Was he hugging himself... To defend himself, I love love things that are ambiguous like that, and 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 we decided to recreate it, and that's what we did. And and I thought, well, how are we going to do this? We'd either fart around looking for a model and do it, or I just do it myself. So me and Paul just got together. Um, he spent a lot of time working out the technicality of how to produce, the, reproduce the, the photographic thing, and I just did it in my in my flat in London. And I just you know we found a mattress, and I just lay there and did this and. He took some photos and we found the right one, but he, Paul's one of these brilliant people that he can get things done really quickly. Cause when we know what we want, we kind of like, we work really well together and suddenly it's kind of like, okay, that's the one. And he said, "Yeah, that's the one. And there's no farting around. It's quite, quite different to working with Peter Savile. I love, love Peter. Peter's a, a dear friend, but he's Peter, is the opposite. He will change things and go through these le- very long kind of processes of self-doubt. And with Paul, it's very different. we just like, yeah, that's, that's good.
1: I love it because it's, um, it's definitely got the suede signature on it somehow. And it feels like, yeah, it, it is a bit of a nod to those early days of suede.
0: Well, we've had the theme of the mattress, which is on dogman star. Yeah. It's on coming up. Um, and it's on blood sports as well. Now it's, um, on um autofiction, yeah, the match. I, I don't really know what it symbolizes. Like, I mean, the bed is always a fascinating symbol for me. It's a, you know, it's sex, it's sleep, it's dreaming, it's it's always rest. It, it, it's a bed is it, is such a sort of potent symbol of kind of lots of the good things in life, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and of youth as well, right? I yeah, mean,
0: laying in bed, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, so, yeah nothing to do. Uh, yeah, exactly. There's so many ways to interpret it, isn't it? It could be kind of like depression or boredom or sex or all of these things. There's so many different things. And I, again, I love anything that has a some sort of narrative. So the, the, the mattress is a recurrent theme, which I like to explore.
1: Keith here. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. Just a couple of songs on the new record that really struck me. One of which I think is the new single, if you still call them singles, which is that boy on the stage who can't control the rage. I mean, I saw you last year, I think it was at Ali Pali. It's the first time I'd seen you for quite a long time. And I could not believe the that element of kind of rage or control you brought to the performance. I mean, within, I think, three or four songs, you were sort of head to toe in sweat. <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, this guy's uh, this guy's the same age as me. How is he doing that? Can you tell me a little bit about that element of performance? Because you have to sort of take it to the edge of control, but presumably you have to stay totally in control. I mean, you're in your 50s, you've, you've got a a back catalogue of lyrics to remember. You've got to perform those songs as best you can. So what's that zone that you get into?
0: Well, I mean, I'll start with a, a quote from Performance. as one of my favourite films. Of, you know, is it James Fox or Edward Fox, and a Mick Jagger film? It's James Fox,
1: I think, isn't
0: it? I watched that film on a loop in the, in the 90s, and there's a quote in it that I'll always remember. And the Mick Jagger character says, the only performance that makes it, that makes it all the way, is the one that achieves madness. <laughs> and I've always remembered that. Cause it it's kind of true. It's like you have to let yourself go. And, and you're absolutely right. There's a there's there's a weird paradox because you've got to be simultaneously in control and out of control. And the, and finding that sweet spot where that works is something that only happens after be, being on the stage for 20, 30 years when you can really do it. You know, w- whenever I sort of come upon early sort of performances I always think mm, I'm better I'm a better performer now you know I'm, I'm competing against a man who's in, in, in 25 do you know what I mean i.e. me my younger self but I think I'm a better performer now and part that part of that is because you know where that sweet spot lies sort of thing there's a sense of persona there you kind of like I step on stage and the persona overtakes me but it's a willing kind of um, surrender in, in lots of ways you kind of you need to be taken over by a persona. You can't, it's too terrifying in a way to, to face unless you do put a kind of mask on. Obviously not, you know, not a literal mask, but a metaphorical mask. You need some sort of sort of buffer between you and the, the terror of facing 10,000 people, you know.
1: Yeah, well, what about in the smaller venues? You've got a couple of electric ballroom gigs coming up. You're doing Prism as well. Prism's down the road from me in Kingston. I mean, it's like you don't get stickier carpet than that is a nightclub
0: we're doing some weird little soprano things we're doing prison we're doing um but the other day we did some some secret shows actually we did this thing called fresh kid uh we did the moth club in hackney and we did the deaf institute in manchester and that was absolutely brilliant because literally a couple of hundred people the tiny little places but what i love is when you're you've got that sort of proximity to the audience and the, the faces of the audience are like there and you can touch them and you know i love that flow of energy what i hate is when you play really big places or festivals and there's a huge fucking gap between you and the audience and you've got cameramen and stuff like that it's like oh god really it's like i love you know i always have this sort of thing with cameramen They're like fuck off out of the way take your photos and then fuck off <laughs> they annoy me i don't want to be confronted with a whole load of people people clicking at me it's just boring you've taken you've done your first three songs now fuck off you know what i mean I want to see the audience. I want to see the fans. I want to see the people that care about the music. That's what I want to see. I want to see them right in front of me. So I love those small venues where you get that contact and you get that flow of energy. And I always, sort of, always think that, that, that an audience has a real role in rock gigs. They have a, they're not passive. It's not like going to the cinema. If you go to the cinema, it doesn't matter how you react to it, it's always going to be the same film. If you go to a gig, if you react to it in a certain way, you can completely influence how the gig kind of turns how it can you know you can you can sort of heckle and kind of give the band a hard time or or you can kind of like jump up and down and kind of give them energy and love back and that can be you know you have a complete sort of I think the audience has a role
1: absolutely I mean those gigs where the audience kind of senses that I mean you know something happens whether it's a a sing-along moment or, as you say, a heckle, but then it just transforms the whole gig and it becomes that sort of sense of unity between band and audience. It doesn't happen every time. It's, it's interesting being a member of the audience all the time because you're willing the audience to, to give a bit more. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't.
0: I know. It's, it's like sometimes being at football matches, isn't it? When you're, when you're at a home game, you know, you kind of sometimes... There's a passivity about a home game, isn't there? You can sit, you play, go and watch your, watch your team. I go to Arsenal quite a bit and sometimes Arsenal can be a bit sort of like, you know, just sort of sitting around and then the away fans are giving it more than the, the home fans anyway. <laughs> but th- that's a really interesting point about suddenly something can spark a gig. And I'm, I, I think I'm always looking for that point. I'm very aware of that. We did this brilliant gig. Well, we did this kind of gig back in the really early days. We played this place called I was it the Limeline, Belfast. And it was a kind of one of those, it was when we were doing the pub circuit, you know, really early on, like '92 or something like that, maybe '93. And it was like a tight little kind of back room of a pub. And it, the gig was okay, and it was kind of going quite well, and you know, it's fine. And then I remember Bernard's Amp, and we were playing Drowners, and, and Bernard's Bernard's Amp cut out. And suddenly we were just like playing the song, and there was this guitar wasn't working. And Matt and Simon carried on. And I was just carrying on singing. And we got got to the chorus and all the fans started singing and it was a sort of wonderful moment there was a sense of unity and a sense of sort of togetherness there that I've always remembered and I'm always sort of trying to recreate and that moment really was a real tipping point and suddenly the rest of the gig was fucking brilliant and I remember being fucking riot it's and, and and it was weird because it was exactly the same band and exactly the same people in the audience but it needed some kind of You know, it needed the blue touch paper to be lit. And that moment lit the blue touch paper. And then the fireworks went off. Do you know what I mean? There was a, it's almost like some sort of weird chemical reaction. So I'm always looking for that moment now and trying to kind of recreate. And and you can't always do it, you know, but sometimes it can be a tiny little thing. You can, it can be even, it can even be a sort of, I do, you know, when we play sort of suede shows, I do sort of little acoustic things, sort of sometimes off mic and, and i love that intimacy as well i love you know live music for me is about being fucking loud or really quiet
1: yeah the loud quiet thing can do it it can be quite shocking to to see you know a loud band essentially playing rock but then it's a real test of their metal actually whether they can just take it down very quickly it's mood altering which is i think that's where all good gigs can go
0: yeah you just you want to just sort of provoke something in people, don't you? That you you want to kind of provoke some sort of engagement. And and that can be by fucking blasting out a punk song or or it can be by sort of playing something incredibly delicate and, and, and very emotional. It's it, you're you're just trying to press the some emotional button and trying to get that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's why music is so much about dynamics, you know. That's when I'm when we're doing set lists, I'm always thinking about how it's sort of, you know, the journey and you know. How we're going to create these dynamics in the songs, you know?
1: Right, of course, because the set list is a bit of an art in its own right, isn't it? That the curation of a set list when you have, you know, nine albums and a whole stack of other elements to the discography.
0: Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it, it really. But again, it, it kind of really depends the setlist and set list. It depends. One of the biggest criteria the set list is going to be completely different if you're playing a big festival on a main stage to playing the moth club or something like that you know we we did so last week we did the moth club the deaf institute and then we did this huge fifty thousand people festival in malaga right so the set list and the moth club and the deaf, deaf institute was all new songs and then we go on stage in malaga and if we'd have done all new songs in malaga it would have we would have died to death so we had to do animal night Train, we did she's in fashion do you know what i mean it's got it's a there's no point because a whole load of people that know beautiful ones and two other songs—they're not going to care about the new album. So it's—it's it's very much where, about where you play. You've got to—you've got to be aware that these things are different.
1: Well, two more songs on the new record that leapt out at me on the first few listens, and it's—it's it's always hard to tell, but I picked out these two for a reason. So, personality disorder and shadow self—very distinctive because you have a spoken word verse, and I haven't heard you do that very much, if at all, in the past, but it works so well. Was that a conscious thing? Because the spoken word is somewhat back on trend.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I, I really like all those bands. There's lots of bands doing it really well at the moment. Um, bands like Dry Cleaning. really like Fontaine CC. He does it as well, doesn't he? Yeah,
1: Yard Act. Yeah, there's a few. It's it's really back in, in vogue kind of thing. So that was in your mind?
0: Yeah, no, I'm, but obviously the sort of seed of that was sown by post-punk bands I guess Marky Smith is the master yeah was the master of that kind of technique but he probably got it from someone as well he probably didn't invent it so yeah absolutely I I love that I thought I'd give it a go I thought it sort of worked with with the kind of record that we were making but hopefully I've done it in my own way I don't want it to be a sort of a sort of uh, you know I'm not trying to be John Lydon I'm not trying to be Marky Smith I'm sort of doing it in my way
1: it's interesting because it, it, just not hearing you do it before, yeah, you do it really well. It's, it's definitely brought an edge to those those two songs. As I said, they, they kind of leapt out at me. But yeah, the whole record, by the way, it's. I'm not surprised to hear you talk about how long it took to write those songs. I, I wasn't aware of that. It was kind of a four-year process, but that that's definitely coming through in the record. So it's got that kind of primitive recording element to it. I think the band were you know, in a room a lot of the time during the recording, just doing it at once, but the songs are really strong.
0: Yeah, well, no, we know write, we write a lot of songs these days. I think we probably wrote 50 songs for this album. So, you know, the hit rate is one in five, really.
1: Right. Um, okay. And that's fine.
0: I don't, I don't mind that because I like working. I, I like, you know, I don't, uh, years ago, I used to write songs. It was a very different kind of process. It was much more of a kind of how I think lots of, the the general public kind of think songs arrive in this kind of magical way and you sort of sit in there and the chaise long and suddenly a song will pop into your head it's not really like that anymore you know it's a a lot of a lot of slog a lot of um, a lot of perspiration a little bit of inspiration
1: have you got better at picking out and curating the songs you want on the album then because in the past obviously when you've been making those records for either at the peak of your career or attempting to sort of come back to the peak under the pressure of, you know, the commercials, I guess. This time you don't have that because you've left out so many great songs. I mean, you've talked about that quite a bit. You you know, the B-Sides collection is, it's like discovering a suede double album.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the early B-Sides especially, I think, kind of as 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 strong as the debut album in a different kind of way. But I think they're interesting. The, one of the reasons that they're strong is I don't know it's one of the reasons is, is that we there was less pressure on those on those songs and they, they were allowed to just sort of grow and be interesting. The, there was a sort of a pressure from quite early on to be formulaic I think, especially with singles and that's just what happens because you get into this that kind of rut you know but yeah I think we've always written a lot and I've always it's always been a matter of what songs we cho- choose really and I think I have got better at judging these days. But there were a lot. There's a couple of songs that possibly could have made this album that we left out, and that we'll, we'll kind of recycle. I think.
1: Yeah, I think that is the opportunity actually with streaming. I think it's one of the few, or maybe there's many good things about streaming, but certainly it is the kind of the ability to repackage and reintroduce the B sides. A band of longevity, just sometimes remarkable, just what they kind of cast. Th- thrown out if you like if that's yeah. the, the term from the original cuts of the of the album when Pearl jam released lost dogs I couldn't believe how good that record was it's just you know it's just outtakes but it's all killer no filler yeah and yeah sci-fi lullabies is the same sort of thing really so I think you should I think you should maybe look for an opportunity to put them out
0: there from every period there's some good stuff you know even from like when we when it always started to go wrong head music and a new morning the b-sides from that period there's some there's some pretty good stuff on uh, around that and I've wanted to do it like a sci-fi lullabies too for quite a while now maybe we'll we'll do it as like a record store day thing or something like that
1: yeah yeah that'd be cool the art of longevity is a team effort show is produced by the song sommelier that's me with project melody it's audio engineered and edited by audio culture our amazing cover art is by the wonderful mick clark and original music for the show is by andrew james johnson Okay, so I know we don't have too much time left. I wanted to get your take on on the industry. One of the reasons I started this podcast, obviously, was, was that quote from you. and I've always liked your take on the industry and how you've been able to articulate it. I'm not a journalist. I'm kind of from an industry background. I've been sort of 20 years, 20 odd years as an exec, always fascinated by the, in some ways, the crudity of the music business compared with the sophistication of other businesses, if you like. You, you end your last book, so Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn ends in 2003. Suede split up at that point, having made New Morning, which you weren't happy with. When you came back, you came back with Bloodsports, It was a very good album, but it was 10 years later, the whole industry had changed. Was that disorientating at the time?
0: Um... Not really, because I don't think that, I think there's, there's things that have changed and things that haven't changed. And people are always obsessed by the changes because that's sort of like what you can point at and go, oh, look, it's different. There's lots of things that are very similar. So no, I didn't find it that disorientating. I think it was an interesting record to make it, because it was a comeback record and we hadn't released a record for 10, God, well, yeah, 10 years or whatever. We were tied to the conventions of suede, if you like. It couldn't sort of like it would have been a bizarre thing to have to to do to to release a, a record after ten years that was some sort of weird experimental record. Do you know what I mean? It had to be a a statement of almost a statement of identity, saying this is the kind of band that swayed R. It had to. So in in one sense, it had to be have a kind of a, a, a kind of a whisper of conventionality about it, and hopefully, it sort of pushed that a little bit but it couldn't and, and we needed to go on to night thoughts to be able to stretch out a bit so no I didn't I didn't find it that disorientating the way in the which the music industry changes I find it so it, it seems to be so the, the rate of change seems to be so so quick that I, I don't even bother really taking it in anymore what I mean by that is like it seems to change every six months about when you release singles or at what point or, but there's no point in kind of like entering your memory because it will change again in another two weeks time. Do you know what I mean? It's it's constantly shifting and, and that's kind of quite interesting, but no, I don't find it. I, I don't find it that disorientating. I kind of, I sit back from quite a lot of it. Things like social media, I don't have anything to do with. I don't want to get involved in, in in social media. I leave that up to sort of like people that work for us to, 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 to sort of like grease those wheels, you know.
1: That's one of the things that has fundamentally changed is music press, right, which was so important for you in, I mean, for better or worse, uh, you know, carving out the narrative for Suede, uh, you know, the best new band in Britain, cover of The Melody Maker, all that. Back then the press was able to kind of make a band and just Throw it out at the public, if you were interested in music in any way, shape, or form, you'd know about a band if they wanted you to know about it, and it's completely changed now,
0: yeah, do you think it's better or worse? There's no point in kind of you know lamenting it because it's just different, isn't it? It just is what it is, but I think that I think that the 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 music press of the seventies, eighties and nineties was a generator. I think it generated great music in lots of ways. And people were very cynical about it at the time. I remember always when we went abroad and people, because we, you know, with so much hype around the band, we were sort of seen as this sort of like playthings of the British press and they were, Oh, what about the hype and all this sort of thing. But, you know, if you look at lots of, you know, even punk or something like that, I don't think could have happened without the, without the enemy and the melody maker and sounds and all those things. It was kind of like, it was born of that kind of, that, the, the sort of battle of the music press. And even though, obviously, the music press didn't write our songs or anything stupid like that, that kind of fiery crucible was definitely part, an important part of the genesis of the band. And I think you just it's a shame you don't have that anymore, in a way, because I do think that, that that debate, that weekly debate between people was really important. That, you know, it, it, kind of, it sort of made people care about it. It gave it a kind of tribal nature. I don't think we'll ever see it again. I, th- I think that what's happened is that I think social media has replaced obsession with bands. I think that's what's happened culturally. I don't think we'll ever have that level again. I think it's past. I think that I think that the last time was the nineties and possibly the noughties when we had that. But as soon as now you have social media, that's what young people are into now. That sort of like yeah, they they I don't think they have bands have the same kind of like cultural pull anymore and i think i don't think we'll ever go back to those days
1: that's it i think it's that cultural clout that music had it's just uh, diluted and it's a shame because it's still so strong in terms of you know people expressing fandom what music means to them how deeply they connect with an artist is still there it's just fragmented so much
0: exactly yeah and i think that and i'm not saying that there aren't that people don't absolutely love music of course they do and people really care about it but i mean more in a kind of broader cultural sense you know i think it's because people have too many options now you know when i was a kid i used to be able to afford like one album a month or something like that do you know what i mean sort of save up my fucking paper around money and get an album every month and i would live in that album i would play it to death i would exhaustively read every single fucking word on the thing i'd look at the sleeve and i'd kind of live in that world and now people's attentions are so scattered, you know, you I was forced to live in that world because there was no other world to live in. The other world I could live in was going fucking read The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, or 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 kind of like sit and look at a fucking flower for three hours do you know what i mean at least this music was you know and nowadays there's there's lots there's, there's many many more options and there was something quite beautiful about that and quite meditative about that kind of like living in the world of a record and playing it over and over again learning all the words and stuff like that and lots of you know lots of my favorite records are, are still my favorite records because i spent so much time with them when i was young
1: yeah i think it's um it's perhaps something that I think new bands have just got to live with it. I mean, I think, you know, to some extent, old bands have got to live with it.
0: Yeah, it's different now. And it's, you can't, we can't go back to those days because times have changed. And that's just the, something that new bands will have to adapt to. And of course, there'll be great new music that kind of like springs out of this world as well. It's just, it'll be different.
1: Yeah. And for me, the longevity is the test, really, because there are so many great bands popping up now we've mentioned a few you know you look at a band like fontaine's and you think okay you know they've got something
0: yeah absolutely they're great yeah
1: and i'm kind of interested in what does longevity look like for them it's possible they're not going to go through the kind of brett's curve experience i mean who lives to excess (laughs) these days anyway and you know face the disintegration to some extent it's maybe a gentler ride on the roller coaster I think rather than setting setting you up for a fall, which was definitely an element of that kind of press and hype in the 90s, there's something today about just having to to stay relevant, to just work really hard to stay relevant. You know, if you go away and take a break for two or three years, you're kind of risking being forgotten about.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a, That's what I'm, the conundrum that I'm always faced with making every album is sort of like how to make, how to keep yourself excited about it? You know, that's that's always the, the the huge question that you have to. You can't, you know, as you. This is our ninth album now, and it's you, you, we can't just make the same record again. You know, I don't want to be one of those bands that that make a great record, but it's the same one every time. Do you know what I mean? There always has to be a difference, even if that difference is quite subtle. And the thing with with Auto Fiction is, it's another rock record, and we've made rock records before. But for me, it feels like a different sort of rock record. So it's always you're always looking for ways to keep yourself engaged with it. And I think if you keep yourself engaged, then you'll keep your audience engaged.
1: That must feel great in your 50s, right? I mean, you've come back, you've made a rock record, you've tapped back into that sense of the excitement of making music. I mean, that's where Fontaine's and Working Men's Club and any, any band going now would kind of kill for that. What would you say to them?
0: Like I said, I don't know if it's, I don't know if longevity should necessarily be a goal. It's been a goal for me personally because I've always, I suppose, there's a bloody mindedness. I suppose you know when we played first started, everyone thought we were a bit of a flash in the pan, blah blah blah. But I always wanted to prove those people wrong, and that kind of turned into this sort of dogged, bloody mindedness where I kind of like I wanted to carry on making music, and I wanted to prove people wrong. And but as well, I just love doing what I do, so that that the longevity has come about because. Of my obsession with what i do I, I i'm always i think my my obsession with doing what i do is born from a kind of recognition of my flaws i think i'm always trying to make things better than than i've done in the past i'm always looking at stuff we've done in the past with a slight sense of disappointment i always think mm, that could have been better So there's always this sort of like thing, okay, now I'm going to do it better on the next one. I'm going to do it. And I think as soon as you lose that hunger to improve yourself, then it's game over. As soon as you think that you've done your best work, it's game over. You've always got to be thinking, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. And you'll never get there. This is the paradox. You will never reach that point of perfection. But the search for that point of perfection is the point, It's the journey and the search. That's that's what the point of this all is.
1: Yeah, there's something about striving, isn't there? To be as I think you said in the past, you know, band's got to accept its limitations, but then providing you're always testing the boundaries of those limitations, you're kind of you're doing work that is definitely conveys the spirit of the band, but as you say, just is pushing the boundaries and trying to get better. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. And fans will come with you on that journey, I think. And maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe that's the key. I, I knew we were going to get to the key of longevity with this conversation, Brett. It had to happen. So maybe that's it.
0: Going back to my other point, I, you know, that's been a personal journey for me, but. I think there's been plenty of brilliant music by, made by people that have, you know, made one record, and and so it's not it's not like kind of you have to have a thirty year career to you know look at the you know the ultimate band that did that with the Pistols, weren't they? I mean, Pistols made one kind of world changing record, and the idea of a sort of second Sex Pistols album is like who wants no one wants that, do they? That's that was the point of them. It was this explosion of a bile and kind of revolution and and that that's brilliant as well you know so there's different models you know
1: yeah better to burn out than fade away
0: yeah absolutely but
1: maybe just keep on doing it well brett i'm really looking forward to hearing the record properly sticking it on the turntable seeing you play those tracks live and yeah the phd on longevity i think I, when i publish it I'll, I'll put your name on
0: it you can, you can probably, I, I definitely like the idea of, of something called brett's curve. That's, that's cool
1: great to see you brett uh, and good luck with everything
0: yeah thank you very much
1: thanks a lot thanks for coming on
0: bye-bye take care see you later